I am Nathan Case. I am a, secure, a senior security strategist with AWS. Um, this is... I am Paul Hawkins. I am a security strategist with AWS. I am a long way from home. I live in Melbourne, Australia, which made crafting this talk interesting. <laughs> so we are like 15 hours apart. So the whole time we did this talk, it was really fun to go back and forth. We have lots of notes in here that you won't get to enjoy, but are kind of jokes between us. Apologies. A couple of you have asked questions about some of the fundamental bits of AWS, and a couple of people have asked questions about containers and things you can do with forensics. The SEC 318 talk is a really good talk to deal with forensics, and we'll actually have a little bit at the end that will run through an open source bit that myself and a couple of my friends have written, and actually will help you do forensics in Fargate containers, EKS, ECS, and all of that. So that's a kind of a fun one you might want to try to get into, or at least watch the video of afterwards. Um, the threat management talk is really good if you're looking to implement kind of response for guard duty and security hub in your own environment. That's a great talk to go and get some guidance from. All right. So, what are we going to be talking about today? So, this is a talk about incident response, or we sometimes call it event management. It's a 300 level talk. It's a 300 level talk not because we're going to show you code snippets on the screen, but it's a 300 level talk because it's diving into a subject that you need to get good at to operate in the cloud. So we're going to talk about how you can use the cloud to do incident response in the cloud. So how many people here are security specialists or security people in general? Okay. How many people are developers? Okay. I, I note that some of the developers are actually sitting near the security people. That's interesting. We were going to divide the room and like yeah, just yeah. throw stuff at each other. So one of the things that we generally see is that Optimism Otter is important. Do you, have you guys recognized Optimism Otter in the bottom right? Bottom right for you? Yes, bottom right. Yeah. So Optimism Otter is one of the things that we need to do as security people and as a company. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Before we start, in general, we did this talk because we felt like we wanted to begin to address issues that I was seeing as an incident responder. So my background at AWS is to respond to the incidents that our customers have. So if you, sir, happen to have a bad Monday morning, I am the guy that gets to come talk to you. I am the guy that gets to help you. Paul? I used to work for a bank. Um, and we put material regulated workloads in the cloud. I used to work in the security architecture team. And I spent a lot of time working with the business, so developers, engineers, who were at one point worried about coming and talking to, to security people because they thought that they would get a, a bad response. And that means that a security culture of? No. We do not want to be the department of no. If somebody in your organization comes to you with this call application they've built that's super useful for your business, and your first thought is, no, they can't possibly do this. This is bad. You need to think about how you're approaching security. We are all responsible for the security of our organizations. Developers, engineers, security folks, IR folks, working out how we can do the things that help our customers securely is the goal of our, our role. Do you know what I see as an incident responder that goes out and talks to my customers day in, day out about incident response most of the time after it's actually happened? I see security departments that want to say no, and I see developers that sneak around the sides. Because that's what developers do when you tell them no. So when we look at this, it may be very easy to discount this, but it is really a perception issue. It's not necessarily that you as a security person are saying no. You're saying, look, I want to be helpful. I want you to be safe. I don't want you to go do that. Don't go and run in front of the bus, please. It ends badly, trust me. But we have to, as security people, make sure that we stay positive, optimism otter, and maintain a positive outlook with the developer and try to help them accomplish the business goal that they're aiming at. Now, business goals. Yeah, because at the end of the day, we're all trying to get to the same outcome. We're all trying to ship code, and we're trying to ship code that is secure and reliable and performant. So the business kind of is the thing that's driving you know, what are we trying to do. Then we've got developers who are doing work to build things. We've got security folk who are looking at the organization going, well, what do I need to help? What do I need to do? And then we've got operations folks who sometimes get left out, sometimes not, and they're trying to keep it running. So. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Okay. <laughs> so as this happens, uh, generally when we have smaller summits and whatnot, I'll actually have people up on the stage. If we pull pe three people up from the audience up on stage and we have them all pull in different directions, you guys all know what happens, right? 
they almost likely fall over because one of them is bigger than the others, right? And it's funny, ha, 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 we, it's cool. But the reality is that what I'm trying to get across to you in that example is that the business is going to say, ship it on time. How many people, security people, developers, have been in the situation where your CEO says, no, I, I don't care. You said you would launch on that date. We've all seen that, right? Which means that developers are basically going, okay, I've been told we've got to meet the date. Maybe there's a, a, an event. We've committed to something. Um, just going to build it faster. I'm just going to do whatever I can to get it out the door. And that's you know, people trying to do the right thing by their sort of subset of worldview. Security, however, says that they want to make it secure. Does that actually work? Can you ship it faster and make it secure nine times out of 10? Not if you're looking at most of the processes that we've used in the past, right? Security ends up being the logic gate or the gate that says, yeah, that doesn't look like that's PCI compliant. How many people have had that discussion at the very end of the development cycle? Is that ever a happy discussion? Ever? How many people have had that discussion at the very beginning? Thank you. <laughs> Typically, I have candy bars. I only have popcorn. I apologize. And then finally, we've got operations who are just trying to keep it stable. And to an ops person, that's don't change things. Keep, if it doesn't change, then it's going to be stable, and I can support it, and everything's fine. But we need to change because we need to deliver features and functions, and we need to serve the business, and we need to do all of these things. But we shouldn't do it by pulling in opposite directions. CICD suddenly becomes a very scary thing for your operations folks. Yeah. So this is what we would like you to think of it like. Instead of a bunch of different things serving a single master, think about it as you are all part of the business. You are one unit moving forward. Um, I get that this is a bit touchy-feely, and I get that it's touchy-feely coming from a security person, which makes it even more awkward. But the reality is that if we think about it from the point of view that we are all moving in the same direction and we are communicating more, then I think we get more done. And I say that from the point of view as someone who has been on the outside or the left side of the discussions when I watch development operations and security all yell at each other after an incident. Talking about things as adults is something that we all have to get better at. And talking early. Often. Yeah. As a security architect uh, in a previous role, you used to get engaged kind of late. Somebody would rush up to you with a Visio diagram. You'd kind of draw X's where the files were supposed to go. And they'd say, oh, this needs to ship next week. And we go, OK, cool, but we could have helped you like, do this really well. The earlier you have the conversation between all of these teams, the earlier you can come up with the plan of what you're going to do. And that comes to this. And this is a good way of thinking about security in the cloud. Identity is a foundational control. You move through, and you get to incident response, which is what we're going to talk about today. So three options as incident responders. As we were talking about this actually today, we realized that we should have named this the three little piggies. Who has kids? Do you guys all do the three little piggies? So this is decidedly a three little piggies talk. We have the unprepared account. The three little piggies, the one with the straw house, right? This is the account that has basically just started in AWS. They're fooling around. They might be playing. They're just trying to understand what happens. Everybody uses the root user. Everybody. You would be amazed at how many enterprises I've actually been to who share accounts across multiple users. And we're not talking about AWS accounts here. We're talking about IAM accounts. And this is something that's kind of you see, particularly in the early stages of migration, because people go from a data center environment, and they kind of look at an AWS account and go, well, that's kind of like a virtual data center. We'll just chuck all of the stuff in one big box, and then we can kind of deal with it. Right? Beyond that, then, we have the somewhat prepared, uh, somewhat prepared approach. That is very easy for you to say. Apparently, it is. So this is where we start making more and more and more accounts, right? So this might be 10 accounts for us. We might have gone ahead and started our operations, uh, moving things over to the, the cloud. And we have, oh, one account for this company, and one account for this federated company, and one account for this federated company. And as we start doing this, we realize that the more accounts we have, it adds segregation. We have more IAM users for people to use. Maybe we've started a little bit of federation between the accounts. It's basically secure, but it's kind of like a data center. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's easy to get from the unprepared to the semi-prepared. You start breaking things out by business unit. But what we see a lot in this kind of context is people still apply the very traditional data center controls. It's kind of pretty network focused. They're not taking advantage of some of the higher function services that you can use in the cloud. Now, at some point in the distant future, you end up with the prepared account. And this is where we get into multiple account theory. So who's heard of multi-account landing zone or control tower? Right? 
So I am one of the founding members of our multi-account theory team, uh, multi-account uh, practice. And I love it. It's something that is really interesting to me, and it is the foundation of a lot of the security things that we do in AWS, but nobody talks about it. And it's, it's really generated from the GRC roles, the G GRC thoughts that you, you as customers have, and then implement all the way through AWS. And that ends with being able to do things like account failures and not really caring. We had this account breached yesterday, but okay, it was no big deal because we just redeployed to this new account over here and life was good, we auto-healed. Everybody's happy. And it's, it's a way of also scaling as well because you get to the stage where you're stamping out accounts that are in a node state, a known state. You've got essentially account vending machine of some kind. You've got a bunch of common services, which are the things that people can consume, things like security services and identity services. And then when another business unit or an asset team needs an environment to go and build some stuff in, you can vend out accounts that have a known security baseline. And having that known security baseline is really, really good when it comes to responding to unexpected events in those environments. Now, a couple of you, when I walked around and talked to you, said that you were new to AWS and you were just trying to figure out what to do. Um, you don't have to raise your hands, it's okay. When you get to this point and you realize that you're just starting, instead of going back to that first of the three, the straw house, jump right to control tower, it costs you next to nothing, and it will get you closer to doing multi-account than just starting off with one account and dumping it all in there. Now, this is kind of why we had this talk to begin with. So as we look at incident response, it's very different, right? It's very different for each of these particular little piggies, as we call them. <laughs> depending, on how, depending on what you've built your house out of, you, uh, you get to respond in different ways. You have yes. different tools. And that's absolutely true, right? So who's been here when opportunities knocked? Who's been here at 4 a.m. when opportunities knocked the morning after your birthday? And let's face it, we're in Vegas, so yeah, let's be honest. You might be quite tired. <laughs> let's hope. So how do I get notified? The reality of all three of these scenarios, and keep in mind this is a gradient, right? This is not absolute. This is us saying that if we pick three points on a gradient, these are three points that kind of epitomize what's going on. We have an unprepared individual, an unprepared account, an unprepared enterprise. They might get a call from a customer, right? They might kind of, they might log onto the console, they might have guard duty turned on and go, oh, there's some things I probably should have investigated. They may get an email from someone. Yes. <laughs> Somewhat prepared accounts are gonna go ahead and, well, we've got a SIM, right? So maybe that account, maybe that event actually went into the SIM. Maybe I'm looking at that and that's okay. And maybe that's, that's good. Maybe I've got, some shared ENIs that I'm mirroring off of a Nitro instance and I'm actually looking at what's going on there. Maybe that information, those VPC flow logs are going into my SIM. And you've got like, information, you've, you've, you've done one step further with GuardJet. You've turned it on, you've plumbed in, in CloudWatch events, you're sending it to a Slack channel, you're notifying, you're telling a human that something's happened and they should go and investigate. Right. And then we've got the prepared account. This is where you've reached a, a much higher level of maturity. You've got an understanding of what normal and abnormal looks like for particular roles in your organization. You know where your network traffic flows go. You know what kind of um, calls your, your applications are, be, are making. And you can do some analytics and say, if these things happen, I can respond to them programmatically. And guess what? At two in the morning, I don't have to wake up. At two in the morning, I've already written these things. They've been automated, they've happened, and at 9 a.m. when I roll in, I get a, a little thing on my desk that says, hey, this happened, and by the way, this is the AWS account where your forensics data is. You need to go figure out what's gonna happen. And that day then, we go ahead and figure out how to avoid it in the future. And there's a bunch of good talks this week and historically about yeah. um, customers who've built forensics um, capability on AWS. True demonstrations of how to get started. So you're not starting from zero, you can go and build on kind of prior art here. Now as we get into this and we start to think about the way that detective controls work, right? And we start to think about how is incident response going to happen? Let's keep in mind that we, we have these three items, these three points on a gradient that we're looking at. If we use CloudTrail, if we use CloudFormation, and we start looking at these three points on the gradient, how is that initial point? How fast is that initial, that initial, we just started in AWS gonna be able to respond? And with something like CloudFormation, you can say, this is what my environments are going to look like. So that's a really good starting point. Now, say you start with Control Tower and then you kind of look at using CloudFormation to say, this is what it should be like. And then CloudTrail is you know, seeing what's going on in your environment. GuardDuty is gonna give you actionable findings. It's not another big pile of log sources. It's 
this has happened, you should go and investigate it. Gives you the depth to that, hey, look, something's wrong scenario, right? Yeah. And then you can use something like AWS Config to look at the resources in your environment, fire on change, and evaluate whether that change is appropriate. So a security group has had its um, ingress rules changed. Should a security group have 000 slash zero open? Probably not. So you can have a config rule that detects that and reverts it back to what it should be. So we have to keep in mind as we look at this, there are a lot of ways for us to grow between the points on the gradient that we just discussed, whether you're unprepared, somewhat prepared, or completely prepared, regardless of whether your house is made of bricks or not, yep. you can still move relatively easily up that scale. And we don't want you to get concerned that as we talk about this, oh God, I'm way over here in the straw house, how do I get there? It's a walk, and to be fair, most of the things we'll talk about today tend to take a lot of time. But you can, you can chip away at them. And one really easy way is, if you haven't already got GuardDuty turned on in your accounts, turn, turn on GuardDuty in your accounts, it starts collecting data from VPC flow logs, DNS queries, CloudTrail. It'll give you, give you um, signature-based findings straight away, and then over time it will learn your environment, and you'll be able to get um, behavioral uh, findings as well. And keep in mind that those behavioral findings do take a little bit of time. So once we turn it on, we just have the definitions, and then about 30 days later we get the actual behavioral findings. So as we look at this, and we start to make it larger, we find ourselves in Security Hub. Now, as incident responders, why is Security Hub important to us? And I'll give somebody a thing of popcorn if they can answer it. Anybody want to raise their hand? I see a guy with a camera that I almost threw a thing of popcorn to. Um, so Security Hub is important because we have Guard Duty rolled up into it, right? We have a couple of other things over here, other services over here under there as well. We've got Inspector, and we have Macy, and we have some integrated service partners. Now, as incident responders, why is this important? Well, if we've turned on guard duty and we're getting the alerts from guard duty, we can also go ahead and turn on Security Hub and allow us to see different insights. So we can go ahead and begin to put those things together and get a combined insight. We can also create our own insights. So if we look at this and we start to think about how are we going to respond as a very mature company, we want to make sure that we've got our GRC, right, governance, compliance, and regulatory, nailed down so that we can start putting things like Security Hub at work for us, so the insights that we find can actually be written into some of those custom insights at that point. And Security Hub is a good way of communicating to other stakeholders, this is the posture of my environment. These are the areas where I need to spend some effort raising my security posture, because it's got the, uh, the compliance checks, um, CIS benchmarks, you can get kind of a heat map of this is where I need to spend my time. And that's really good for getting support to do more things which will support your incident response processes. So what happens next in our Three Little Piggies demonstration, right? Well, our unprepared folks <coughs> have a bad Monday. Yeah, so the straw house piggy is they're going, what environment was this? What, what am I trying to deal with? Um, can I even get onto this environment? Is this some EC2 somewhere? Um, they spend a lot of time working out what the context is and what's even going on before they can start the incident response process. Um, what we're talking about in this whole talk is how quickly can you respond to something happening? And potentially in an unprepared environment, it may take you quite a long time because you won't have great notification. It might take you a while to work out what the context is. Now, in my experience, this is about six months. And this is, this is mean time to discovery and, and, and attribution and mediation, remediation in, in Nathan time. And I apologize, it's not horribly scientific. But this is what I generally see. This is a customer that potentially just started. They may have moved over from a data center, and they actually were most likely had issues in the data center that they moved up to AWS even. So in some cases, this can be quite complex, and it may take them a significant amount of time to see it. Now, when we see this, well, we'll keep that for later. Yeah. I was going to jump into something else there. So the somewhat prepared folks, let's be honest. I mean, it, it can take as much as two months. We've got a sim. We've got things happening. Maybe we're actually seeing who's logging into which roles, but realistically, you still have humans. Yeah, this is still a human investigative process, but you've got better data capture. So you will have had CloudTrail turned on, sent to a central account, you've got a theme, you have the ability to dive back into historical information, and you've got separation of your environment. So you can say, I've got a bunch of odd-looking events from this part of my environment, I can dive into here. You don't have to look through your entire environment. So it's easier for investigation, but there's still a whole lot of human work involved here. 
So when we say runbooks, for instance, who has runbooks? Who doesn't have runbooks? Okay, thank you for the honesty. Nice. So as an incident responder, one of the worst things that happens when I have to go talk to a customer is I say, do you have runbooks? And they go, what? Because if you don't have runbooks, there's no way for me to help you or help you help you get from point A to point B. On the, op on the opportunistic side, this is the opportune time to build your runbook, right? We can have this now and we can start working on it. Yeah, and you can, you can build a runbook very simply, kind of pick a problem, say, what would I do if this happened? And get a bunch of folks in the room and start writing stuff down and go, I would call this person and this person and this person. And that forms the basis of everything you build from there on. So. What does a prepared account look like? Ideally, this is event-based security at its best, right? We have an account that is looking for things. We have a security tooling account. We have a security read-only account. We have a security break glass account. These accounts are specifically built for us following Control Tower and some of the best practices that we have online that's, that have been published that show us how we can build these accounts and automate them so that all of the account findings go back to a central location. And you'll note that we've got the security account there at the top left almost. And also we get context, so we've got um, access pre-provisioned if required, we've, we're driving a lot of automation, we're joining the automated response to the detection and findings, so potentially in this environment, a lot of the stuff happens before a human ever has to get involved. Step functions are great, and Nate is gonna do a talk later on this week which talks about that, um, to kind of give you that logic tree of this has happened, automation can respond, this has happened, automation can respond, oh, now I need to get somebody from the business to approve but you're doing a lot more repeatably and programmatically, so it's the codification of those runbooks we talked about. So, on our Monday morning, what's the opportunity that we actually walk away from? Well, if we're the unprepared account, to be fair, we have a lot of opportunity for growth. Yeah, we can, um, we can get a lot better at this, we can kind of um, look at you know, how, do, how are we responding, but <laughs> When we're, when we're actually going through the response process in this unprepared account, we can roll credentials. We may need to build a bit out new, new environments. We might not have those environments captured as source code. We, we may... And today we can. Yeah. We may have to kind of go, what did we build again? There's been a lot of human, in, human access, access. Keep humans away from environments is a really important tenet to, uh, to think about because it makes it you know, really hard if people are going in there and changing stuff. Um, you may not have as much information as you, you need to actually go and you know, respond. But, and that's kind of one of the, this is kind of one of the coolest parts of the cloud, and frankly, one of the coolest parts about it being an incident responder at AWS. I've been on a lot of these calls. I've gotten to talk to a lot of people that are completely unprepared for the fact that I'm talking to them that Monday morning. I have had a 100% success rate of getting them back up and running. And it's extremely exciting to see people be able to do that. It's extremely exciting to start with a customer that's having a really bad day and walk them to a new account and be able to, in that account, then watch them set up what their runbook should actually be and begin to grow from there. And this is a great moment for that to happen. It's a question about whether you capitalize on that moment or not. Yeah. But then you're trying to get to the next level of maturity. Which? So this is a lot easier. There's less noise because of the aforementioned kind of context enrichment, um, the separation of accounts. Um, you may only have to need to redeploy a subset of your environment. And if you're starting to rely more on infrastructure as code, that's a lot easier. It may be still a, a manual push this application into this environment, but it's an environment that's separate and known and understood. And then you've got you know, people using just their own IAM credentials or federation, so you can see which IAM principles are involved in the issue. I think this is one of the coolest moments too, like when you get to work with a customer that's in this moment and they realize that something's happened and they start seeing this stuff start paying off, right? They can start watching the fact that their security groups defended something, or they can start seeing these denied actions. And you'll see the denied actions in the cloud trail. You'll see the denied actions in the sim that they're running. And that's a fun way to start to see, oh, look, all of these things that we've started to put into place actually start working. And that's kind of, as security professionals and developers, this is one of those moments where you start seeing all of that automation work that you've been putting in start to pay off, right? And security people, this is a good time to mention that one of the really good things about talking to the developer folks is they're likely more experienced at building stuff in the cloud. So they will be able to help you get the things that you've always wanted to do as a security professional actually built. Trust so, me, you don't want me developing for you, it's bad. No. I'm not gonna say anything. I, I didn't expect you to deny it. 
So as we prepare, uh, from the prepared approach rather, this is kind of Monday morning as usual, right? Monday morning as usual is something happened. We have gotten enriched text alerts. We know what's going on. We understand as things move forward that we can go ahead and destroy, make a new one, blow it away, make a new one, fix it maybe, and then make a new version, redeploy from code. We have all sorts of options here, and that's one of the greatest portions of this experience. Generally, the RCA happens that very same day. Hey, this thing happened in the, in the, in the application last night. Somebody uploaded a, a something. Unexpected. And, uh, but bad things happened. But in this, this kind of scenario, you're confident that the things you've built have helped. You can then look to iterate on the things you've built, do the root cause analysis, get all the people in the room, have that conversation while the issue is fresh, while you've got the, the data really to hand. You don't have to, to dig for it. You can say, OK, what goes onto our backlog? What are the things that we can put in place that would have prevented this happening? You still have the detect and respond capability, but you always want to kind of move earlier on in the security chain and say, is there anything that I could have tweaked in my baseline configuration that would have made this better? And then you just keep iterating on that. So how does the day end? Well, so in our unprepared account, we're kind of... Uh, Things are awkward for a yeah. little bit, probably. You've got to figure out what's going on, right? You've got to look up stuff. We've already talked about what happens. Realistically, by the end of the day, though, probably you've got things, you know what's going on. You know where you have to go, and you know what you have to do. This at least gives you a foundation to say, well, a bunch of stuff happened. What do we need to, be, to, to do to get better? You're kicking off a process of building some runbooks. Your teams understand that there's some work that needs to happen, and it's important to prioritize this work as part of application development and delivery, you start doing a bit more separation, you start kind of going, well, how do, I get to, how do I get to the next stage of maturity? How do I kind of keep improving? Now, for security people in the room, this is one of those moments when you have the opportunity, unlike any other moment in your company, to communicate up the chain what you need and be listened to. Don't waste this moment, okay? This is one of those things that you can pull up and say, look, this thing happened because I've been saying this, and I get that I've been, you know, office of no, or I've been negative, and I need to be more optimistic. I get it. I'm sorry. I'm going to be more optimistic, and that will prevent this thing. And we are going to try to do some of the things that we'll talk about in a second to get everybody to not have to go through this again the same way. Now. In our somewhat prepared account, we're already better off. We're not dealing with the complete, uh, our entire environment problem. We're, we're dealing with a uh, subset of the environment problem. We've got some investigation that we can do. We've, we've got um, logs that we can dive into. We've got less to deal with. We're still going to have to feed into kind of what's our root cause analysis, but you know, what are the things that we learn from the somewhat prepared um, environment? And there's a lot of automation that happens here. As far as things go, is this going to take us six months to detect? Certainly not. Are we going to know what's going on probably by the end of the first day that we discover it? Probably. Yeah. We've got all the logs in one place. We're looking at things better. We're understanding more what's going on. We have some automation in place, most likely. Now, how does my day end? Best case, everybody learned a valuable lesson. You had a near miss. Something was scary, but it's OK. Yeah. Hopefully, that's, that's, that's the kind of the worst of it. But if not, your teams are going to get the opportunity to exercise their skills in a real environment. We'll talk about game days a little bit later. but you'll be able to say, okay, well, we had a runbook. Mm -hmm. We invoked the runbook. The call tree worked. We phoned some people. We had to, you know, depending on the context, we need to phone our PR people. We needed to phone our legal folks. We needed to phone like, a different um, set of people in our organization. We validated that that process worked. We can then tweak our runbooks. This is still a, a good learning opportunity. Um, the consequences are lower because we've planned and prepared. But every time something happens, you should take something from it and improve your environment. So, and then this is just kind of like, well, our environment trucks on. It's Monday morning. Meh. Nate didn't get paged. He got a, a decent 12 hours worth of sleep. So <laughs> he got a decent eight hours worth of sleep. Um, he came in on the Monday. The analytics and the reporting said, this happened. We were able to isolate some instances. Um, we've put them in the quarantine account that we've spun up for the purpose. We're going to be able to do some investigation to kind of work out if there's any trends around that. We can then say, OK, what, what, what worked well? What needs improvement? 
let's, let's build that into our backlog. Let's see how we, can, how we can get better. Now, it's an important thing to note. What is the main difference between somewhat prepared and prepared here from an organizational practice point of view? Anybody want to guess? I'll give you a thing of popcorn that I stole off the cart outside. Say again? Automation is one thing. That's definitely part of it. But how did the automation get started? There's a human process here that I think we all miss because we get so wrapped up in the technology. And that's, somebody sat down and wrote run books, right? And that's kind of how they got to somewhat prepared. And that's cool. But then somebody actually sat down and started thinking about how that's going to work when we find something new. And that iteration process that, or did you say iteration the first time? Did you say iteration or automation? Okay, cool. So that iteration process leads to an automation process. And that iteration is we're going to accept the fact that we screwed up, that there's something going on inside of our application that we need to fix. And you know what? We're going to go ahead and set up a new sprint just to fix that. And I think that's one of the weirdest things that kind of comes in here is, again, it's not about being security people and telling people no. It's about security people and being enabling. And then beyond that, we have to be security people and be accepting. Look, bad things happened. We're going to fix it for next time. And this is how we're going to do it. So how do we get prepared? Back to this one again. Hands up who's seen this slide before. <laughs> and if you don't all raise your hands, I don't know what to do for you. Even with bribing a popcorn. This is, again, this is the cloud adoption framework, Core 5 Epics. It's a good way of thinking about security in the cloud from identity being a foundational control through detection all the way through to incident response. Using this as your mental model is a good way to approach security in the cloud. And the other thing that will help security in the cloud, next slide, is the well-architected framework, specifically the security pillar. Now, when we get into this, keep in mind that we're talking about incident response, right? So if I start talking to you about well-architected and incident response, which security people in the room go, yeah, it doesn't make sense? So I know when I started at AWS and before when I was working at a data center and whatnot, and people talked to me about architecture, I didn't think security. But one of the most interesting things that I have as, a, as I guess, a four-year long-term AWS employee is that it's interesting how things change. And architecture has kind of become this plan. And it's started to work as a... I, as the security, I, as the incident responder, am helping developers and operationalists work at what they're doing. And this plan begins to iterate. And the important thing about plans, specifically in the context of incident response, is that you should test your plans. Very much that kind of traditional upfront architecture. Here is the architecture. It gets agreed. It gets kind of handed off to someone. And it probably works. When we're talking about IR, the plan for our automation, we need to make sure that we exercise and test and plan. And the reason that we want to be able to test is so that we can iterate and improve our plan. And it becomes this virtuous cycle of, OK, I started off with this. I did some testing. I, knew, I now know more things than I did when I started. I'm able to iterate my plan, and my plan gets better. So every time I build an environment or build a new application or branch out into a new direction, I'm stepping off from a much higher level of maturity. And as we pull that camera back and we start looking at a larger section of things, if you, as the incident responder, step into an architectural development meeting, how would things change? What would you do that would change that meeting? How would you say to that developer, hey, you know what? I'm not sure it would be a good idea to do system A next to system B next to system C, put them all in one subnet and have no security groups. I'm thinking that might not be the best choice. Because realistically, in an incident response scenario, if one of these things gets popped, all three of these things are going to get popped. So let's go ahead and look at it from the point of view of what happens in a failure mode. And what you can do is you can ask the developers who have much closer knowledge of the, the applications, what's the consequence to your application if this particular component is unavailable or isn't under your control or the data is not what you think it is? If you've got a um, transactional um, application, what's the impact of various components? And then if you get the people who own the applications thinking about that, they can tell you what the consequences are, and then you can help them define what the response should be. Again, we're working together. It's not security saying, do this thing. It's us as security professionals making sure that the people who own the applications help us understand 
why they're doing certain things, and then we can help them do those things in the most secure way better, most secure way possible. So, we're going to play a game. I'm going to show you two slides. Okay, this is slide one, and this is slide two. This is slide one, and this is slide two. I feel like I should ask you to read me the word chart or the letter chart now. Who thinks slide one is more secure or more secure than slide two? Stand up. Slide one is more secure than slide two. Anybody going to stand up? Who thinks slide two is more secure than slide one? Stand up. Got a couple of hands. Nobody's willing to commit. Come on, commit. There's a few folks. OK. The reality is you have no idea. This is not nearly enough information. This is back to the, here is the Visio diagram, draw X's where the firewalls go. You need to dive into this stuff. You need to work with the teams that own it to kind of see, you know, yes, we've got some arrows and boxes. We've got some flows. Is this actually how the application works? What did you build? I have no idea. I, it, the benefit here is as we look at this, the, this is actually off of the, the Woodhouse or the, the somewhat prepared scenario. We actually have security groups in this one versus the first slide, which had no security groups and everything was just connected. Is this better than that? Yeah, sure. But is it secure? I have no idea. It's hard to tell. We need to be in those meetings. We need, as security people, to be organized with the developers, with the operations teams, so that we all can communicate what's going on. If we do this, and we have an operations team that logs into all of these servers randomly and stores SSH keys on all of these, it really won't matter. Like, it's still a bad idea, right? So we have to understand how things are going to work. So, you know what you're trying to achieve? What does the plan look like? Where do you start? So, runbooks. Runbooks. Please. A tactical approach. A runbook is you kind of think, what are the situations that can occur? And taking a risk based view is definitely something that we would recommend here. Look at your environment. What are the things that are going to be most impactful? Start with defining a, a runbook to address those then this is going to be your, if this happens, what are the steps that I would go through to correct this and investigate? And who do I need to talk to? It's not just going to be one person responding. There's going to be business owners. There's going to be developers. There's going to be ops folks. What does your call tree look like? Now, as we talk about runbooks and we talk about doing them in general, who knows who to have in that meeting? Who are you going to have in the runbook meeting? Is the runbook meeting going to happen at the end of development? I would hope not. If we're having security people in the architectural development, ideally this runbook's getting built with your application. So you're continuing to build this runbook ongoing. And guess what? It doesn't stop. When you get done, it continues to get larger. And potentially it's part of the testing. Like when, when, you, when you deploy a new architecture, like you go through validation that the runbook actually made sense and was something that people could enact and did actually help you respond to an issue with a particular application. Now, what's one of the fun things that we can do with developers? When we hire a new developer, we can hand them the runbook and say, look, our security department is entirely behind you as the development team. Please read this so that we understand and you understand what needs to happen. That brings us to playbooks. Who actually has a playbook? Read the definition. Something strategic, something that your C-levels, your VPs actually understand and read, something they actually had a hand in making. Anybody have that? Guess what? That's a bad thing. So who here is a security person? Who here is the most loved employee at your company? Who here is really good at communicating? Yeah, you're a liar. <laughs> who here is really good at communicating up the chain? Anybody? Yeah, we, you're a liar again. At least you're consistent. At least you're consistent. What's that? <laughs> I've been to security companies. I'm not going to believe that one either. So the reality is, as we start writing out these playbooks, it's something that we can include the C-levels, the VP-levels, the HR folks. Make no mistake, if you're in Europe, HR folks are important. So we want to include these people, and we want to start writing these playbooks out so they actually understand what's going on. Who understands why I think HR folks are important in Europe? GDPR, folks. And not just in Europe. Well, fair. Yes. 
I guess we have to go, okay, fine. I'm from everywhere. There are reasons that we talk about GRC and IR. If that's not enough, and acronyms all shoved together. When we talk about governance regulations and compliance, and we talk about incident response, we have to make sure that we understand from a playbook point of view, what are my legal requirements? What are my HR requirements? What things do I have to plan on in this type of a situation? And if we haven't included all of those team members into the writing of this document, we've missed. Does that make it easier or harder? Generally, it's gonna make it harder. This comes back to, again, humans need to talk to each other. You need to not work in the silos. For many regulators, actually one of the provisions is you know, maintain an IR process that is robust and tested. Yeah. yeah. Pick the regulator of your choice. There will be something that's in that general area. So, definitions for today. Who's heard of SIRS, or Security Incident Response Simulations? A couple of us? Oh, I failed that one badly. Sorry. We'll go back and review that incident about how you weren't able to throw it. <laughs> so when we do incident response simulations, who do we include here? Why wouldn't we include the same people that we included in our playbook? Why wouldn't we start to play these games with our, with our executives? Why wouldn't we start to play these games with everybody that's involved, the development teams too? So who here is a security person again? Who here is afraid of getting fired when an incident happens? Yeah, if you don't have your hand up, you're lying. So it's the reality of the situation, right? They don't understand what you're doing because they're not security folks. They're not security people. You're over here working like a crazy person. They don't know what you're doing. This is a great way for you to open up that box and show them this is exactly what's going on. When this happens and this is how we prepared, this is what we're doing. This is why I'm not scared of this. I've taken it apart, I've taken the fear out of it, and whoosh, off it goes. And a really good way to engage execs is the, the tabletop exercise. So there are kind of a couple approaches to an incident response simulation. Tabletop exercise doesn't require you to go and do any red teaming, any poking of your environment. You can sit down in a room, and this is a good way of getting your kind of legal PR senior leadership involved to say, these are the things that are important to us as an organization. These are the plans that we're going to make so that we as an organization can be better able to respond to these things. And just stepping through this is what's happening. So if this happened, what would you do? What would you do? What would you do? What would you do? Who do you call? Who do you call? And that just fleshes out the kind of what the response plan should be. And then you can move on from that. Once you've built something that's a bit more um, automated and functional, um, to actually run through a technical exercise, get the same stakeholders involved. Maybe you can get, you know, the ultimate goal is to run kind of ad hoc red, red teaming, but running technical exercises. Check that the playbook works. Check the automation you built functions as you expect. And then you can actually measure. You know, what's our time to detect? What's our time to respond? Getting to that, being uh, as quick as possible to respond to something unexpected happening and restoring business functionality. And guess what? If you're going to automate your runbook, what do you have to do anyway? Right? You have to make pretend. You have to pretend that this thing is going to happen. And at some point, you have to actually be in a place where you can test that automation and see what happens. You don't want to test this automation on live production code. It's never a good idea. And I've only been in a handful of situations where somebody writes something, heat of the moment, they hit go, and it actually works. You want to test this beforehand. You want to be in a place where you can do a technical exercise and make sure everything comes off the right way. And beyond that, it's a great way to communicate to everybody you're working with. So communicate. Stay employed. We'd like you to. So that brings us to a general definition. If I've got to build a runbook, what am I going to think about? How am I going to build this SIRS? How am I going to build this simulation? I find that thinking of the adversary personally is kind of silly, right? I've been a hacker before. I've been a red teamer. I'm going to come up with one thing off of, out of left field, and you're not going to have any clue that it even was there. So trying to plan out what I'm going to do is a waste of your time. I find a much better way to do this is to look at the intern that you just hired out of college and to see what they do next. And that's somewhat of a joke, but it's also kind of realistic. They don't have a gauge on where the bounds are. There's no expectation for them. So they're just going to go do stuff. They're probably operating in good faith, but... I want to make the costs go down. Yes. I turned off these really expensive things. Yes. This X1 is, we got rid of the X1. Never mind that it was SAP, but we got rid of the X1. And then say, okay, what, what, could, what could this person do? Um, 
what does your environment look like? What's the impact in a specific environment? And you can start off with not saying, I'm going to fix this for everything. Pick a specific environment. Ideally, if you're kind of just embarking on kind of uplifting your security culture, pick a team that you're friendly with. Pick a dev team that's not completely scared of security. Get in a room and go, well, what does, what does this environment look like? What would happen if somebody optimistically tried to say, well, I'm going to save costs by turning off all of these things, which are actually doing useful business functions. How would I find out about it? What's the event? Then what's the control that could have prevented it? What's the control that is going to fire to um, get it back to its known good state? That's where we have here our responder. And in this particular example, our responder is a Lambda function. Our responder is not one of us going and doing some typing. It's an event that triggers, that causes a response action. And then the human is, again, at the end of the process. But taking this as the high level is a great way of going into this kind of remediation stage. Right. And as we start looking at this, we have a whole bunch of things over there on the right, I guess, left. Right. Left. <laughs> we have a whole bunch of things over there on the left. And those are kind of the sensory modes, right? If we look at this as a human body, this is the sensory organs that you have as a human. It's your sight, your sound, your taste, all of it. So as you start looking at this, what is WAF telling me about my environment? What is AWS Shield? What is Macy telling me about what's going on? And as these things come in, they go to one central place, and that's CloudWatch. And that kind of acts like the brain. So that brain is going to go ahead and think about that and go, huh, I've got a rule here about you know, guard duty find known cryptocurrency, so let's go ahead and figure out what we need to do next. And that's going to go to a step function. And that step function is going to evaluate, hey, cryptocurrency. Yep, that needs to go to this lambda over here. And the first thing that that's going to do is what? If I had another thing of popcorn, I would give it to you. I've got a water bottle. Anybody want a water bottle? No? Um, it's going to communicate. Right? The first thing that we need to do, remember to do in any remediation and any IR that we do, especially when we're automating, is communication. Why do we communicate first, especially in automation? Come on, somebody's got to give me an answer. So the humans know, because humans are slow. We are horribly slow creatures, and if we don't know what's going on, we will think that the remediation is indeed the hacker. You don't want to try to remediate the remediation. That doesn't end well. And also you need to, like, Slack is a good mechanism, but other, you know, whatever communication tools are appropriate for your organization. We are aware of this, and it is being worked on. Automation fires, people then go, ah, oh, I don't need to phone up the security team and say a thing has happened, because I know someone's working on it. You can even use um, kind of that chat ops thing that we mentioned earlier, where something goes onto a Slack channel, that's notifying the business owner that they need to make a decision. They can respond to that message that says, yes, it's OK for you to isolate this particular instance. Now, that brings us to an interesting moment. I've been doing incident response for AWS for about four years now. There are 10 things that I can have you go look at that would definitely help you. So if there's anything that you take away from this talk, and I mean, let's be honest, there's going to be a call to action in a minute, but still, these are 10 things that your security teams can do today. They're pretty straightforward. Make sure that you have accurate account info. Why? Because if AWS tries to get a hold of you and it's not right, I'm really sorry. You have to use MFA. Use the MFA. Don't just get bored with a password. Please don't use password 1234. You would be surprised how often I still see password 1234. MFA is one of the best ways of protecting access to things. Yeah. No hard-coding secrets. Please, please, please do not put your AWS key and secret key in your code and then post that to GitHub publicly. Four minutes, currently. And, Have your account breached after that. And dropping. And dropping, yes. Secrets Manager is a great service. For, use it. For where you have to have long-lived credentials, use, use Secrets Manager. It's one of the guidance points in Well Architected about managing credentials. So we have a couple other ones here, limited security groups. Generally, I look at AWS config and say no 000 slash zero for anything other than 443. Real straightforward. Um, international data policies, we're not going to bore you with GRC. Um, who's actually bored? Who thought that was funny? Nobody? All right. <laughs> it's not intentional. This is really important. You really need to care about data policies. GRC is important. Um, centralizing logs. Have your logs going to an account that has limited permissions, write-only, so that you can go and investigate. Yeah. You can point tooling at CloudTrail logs. You can do Athena queries. There's a whole bunch of really good stuff 
that makes it easier to find out what happened previously as long as you've got the logs in a place that you trust. Validate IAM roles. Now we say that here, and you think about that as a human's gonna go do this, but realistically there are a bunch of ways to do this that are entirely automated using BOTO3 and Python. And part of that is, you know what, we shouldn't have IAM.star. That's bad. We shouldn't have EC2.star. That's also bad. Humans in general shouldn't have those types of permissions. Um, generally when I talk to a customer and they're having issues or even not, one of the rules that I suggest they use is just no stars. No stars in your IAM rules. Take action. So guard duty findings are great. I love guard duty. The thing that breaks my heart most is when I go to a customer on a bad Monday morning and they say, yeah, we turned on guard duty six months ago. We didn't like what it had, so we turned it off. <laughs> okay. So seriously, just turn on guard duty, take action. Turn on security hub, take action. Do something with it. Don't just turn it on and walk away. And then consolidate those findings into a, uh, a team or an automation mechanism that's going to notify the right people, either triggering the automation and notifying the humans. So consolidate across your environment so you've got an idea of what's happening. And raise the culture. And I think this is one of the things that all of the technology choices can support. Raising your organization's security culture means that security is the job of everybody in your organization, not just if you've got security in, the, in your job title. If you've got security in your job title, your job is to help enable everyone else in the organization to understand the things that they can do to raise the overall security posture of your organization. So did everybody get a picture? Because seriously, this is the one thing, these are the things that you can do that make me see you less. And I love you all, but you know, Monday morning, Call to action. So what can you do now? AWS Well Architected, it's available in the console. You can self-serve, you can engage a partner if you're working with partners, you can even um, speak to your AWS account team if you have an account team. Go into the Well Architected tool, pick a workload, go and assess yourself. It'll give you a heat map of the things that you need to focus on. And then one of those things is IR, which you should practice. You should also practice um, you need to practice your kind of run books and um, the full thing. No, practice as well. Practice. And then be optimistic. At some point in the future, after you've practiced and practiced and practiced, you won't be scared anymore. And you will come to a point where you can be optimistic about the things that happen in your enterprise and be optimistic about the way you're implementing security all the way down the line. Developers will be happy with you. Your organization will be happy with you. And you will be optimistic about the outcome of security for yourselves. That's what I'd like to see you all get to. And that's what we'd all like to see you get to is optimism. Yeah. Focus on the things that you can do to raise your security posture. Thank you very much.